All right. Well, good morning. Welcome to H2O. Uh, I'm Brian Wiles, one of the pastors here. If I haven't got a chance to meet you, it is great to have you here with us. I want to say a special welcome to H2O Akron. They're joining us via video, as they do most weeks, and it's great to have you guys with us, and we're so pumped for all that God's doing in that new church plant there. We're thankful that we get to be a part of it. And uh, if you've been with us uh, the past couple weeks, you know we've been in this series that we're calling Love Is. That's why we had that, those love movies kind of put all together at the beginning of this service. And uh, we are wrapping up this Love Is series today. It was a three-week series, and if you've been with us, you know we've actually been working through the book of 1 Corinthians this whole year. We started in August, and uh, we've been working through, and in February, uh, we, we lined it up so that we would be in chapter 13, because February is the love month, right? You know, you have Valentine's Day in there, and so we've been talking about what love actually is as we've been working through 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, if you're familiar with that chapter at all, or if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, it's this famous love chapter. And if you go to a wedding, oftentimes the, the 1 Corinthians 13 is read at a wedding, but really we've been discovering and, and journeying together and learning that love is way more than a romantic feeling. Love is way more than just an emotion, although that's part of it, but love actually leads to a lifestyle, and, and true love actually affects the way that we live. So it's way more than an emotion, but it's actually a lifestyle. And so we've been walking through 1 Corinthians 13, and today we're going to wrap up this series. And uh, I think as we're starting off this message, I wanted to uh, start off and recognize something that I think is really obvious uh, to many of us. And the thing I wanted to recognize is that over the past few months, uh, our nation has been a pretty divided nation, right? And much of that division has centered around one specific person. You all probably know who I'm talking about. Uh, you know, this guy, he, he has a former uh, model as a wife, and, and a lot of people say that really uh, he, the only way that he can really win is by cheating to win. And, and this guy, he's been involved in a lot of different scandals, a lot of different lawsuits. He's always on our TV screen. He, he's there all the time. And some people, you know, is, they're so divided over him because some people think he's just so arrogant and such a, a horrible person. And yet others, they, they think that he's awesome. He's this amazing leader. And so again, you, you all know who I'm talking about here today. This controversy centers around Tom Brady, right? Okay. <laughs> Uh, now, if you're not a sports fan, Tom Brady is uh, the quarterback of the New England Patriots. Uh, we just came, you guys thought I was going somewhere else, didn't you? Everyone's like, really? We're going to go there? Okay. So Tom Brady, he's the quarterback of the New England Patriots, right? And, uh, and, and he just won the, his fifth Super Bowl, okay? If you don't know much about sports, that's okay. You, you probably at least heard of Tom Brady or seen him on TV, but, you know, he's this guy that, that has all this, this energy and momentum around him, and, and people, you know, love to either hate him or people are, are backers of him, and they're 100% behind him, but no matter what you think about Tom Brady, here's what I want to say about him today, and I'm not a big Tom Brady fan, but it has been pretty much unanimously decided that Tom Brady is the GOAT. Have you ever heard him been called that before? The goat. The, the goat means that he is the greatest of all time. Okay, the greatest quarterback of all time. And again, I don't like the guy, but a, a lot of people. It's just it's been decided. He won his fifth Super Bowl, and uh, and the way that he won it, I mean, it was it truly was amazing. If you got a chance to watch the Super Bowl, and so it's been decided that Tom Brady is the greatest ever. And, and it's it's interesting because we we have this. Kind kind of fascination with that, that word greatness, don't we? That's why we're maybe even drawn to either love Tom Brady or hate him 
or, or different athletes, you know, that greatness idea is something that, that all of us really long for. I don't know about when you were a little kid, maybe you wanted to be great at something. When I was a little kid, I wanted to be the greatest basketball player to ever play. And it turned out, you know, like most of us, that I was just average, you know. Um, but, but greatness is something that we long for. Greatness is something that, that's out there that we think about, that we talk about a lot, a lot of times. And so when somebody like Tom Brady comes along, it, the, the GOAT, the greatest of all time, we're drawn to that. And when you think about that word greatness, our, our culture and our world, we have a certain definition of that, right? We have a certain picture in our mind about what greatness is all about. Most of us, most, most of the time, it's wrapped up in talent. Right? It's wrapped up in ability. I mean, can a guy throw the ball with amazing accuracy? Can he lead a team down the field to, to win five different Super Bowls? How much talent do you have? That's what we think of when we think of greatness. Or, or we think about maybe things like money or fame or, or popularity or, or a larger-than-life figure. And we think that's what greatness is all about. Right? That's what our world tells us that greatness is all about. And, and oftentimes, we're tempted to buy into that. But today... As we close up 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we're going to come to this idea of greatness. And Paul's going to tell us that love is what greatness is all about. See, here's the big idea today that, that I want to share with you and want to kind of unpack together today. Greatness comes not in our gifts or in our abilities, but greatness comes in our capacity to love. Okay, think about that, because that is so different than what our world actually teaches us and, and how the, the, the life that, that we oftentimes see portrayed on TV plays out. Greatness doesn't come in our gifts or our abilities, but greatness comes in our capacity to love. You see, we've been learning that you can have all the talents in the world, you can have all the amazing gifts that this world may have to offer, but if they're not done in love, they actually don't mean much at all. See, greatness comes from love. And if you remember, as we've been working through this book of 1 Corinthians, the church in Corinth was pretty similar to our culture, actually. And so they were consumed with a lot of different things that the world had to offer. And one of the things that the church in Corinth was extremely consumed with was this idea of greatness. In the beginning of the book of 1 Corinthians, they were having this debate about who was the greatest apostle. You know, and there was actually this argument, if you remember the sermon, where, where they were trying to decide, is Paul better? Is Paul the greatest? Is Apollo the greatest? Or is Jesus the greatest? Okay, so we, just, we figured that one out. Jesus is the greatest, right? And we got to, you know, look into that a little bit. But they were, they were trying to figure out, if, if we could rank a bunch of different people, who would be the greatest, you know? And then, just a few weeks ago, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, they were trying to figure out, what's the greatest gift? That, that, that you can possess. So we talked about all these different spiritual gifts that God gives people within the church. And the church in Corinth, again, was just kind of stuck on this idea that we need to rank things. And so they're trying to figure out what's the greatest spiritual gifts. Is it prophecy? Is it speaking in tongues? Is it mercy? What is it? But here, Paul follows that up and he says, I want you to know that you can set all those other things aside because love and your capacity to love is what greatness is all about. And so today, as we're wrapping up this 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we are just going to look at the very last verse. We're going to look at one sentence, and we're going to unpack it together as we are talking about this idea of greatness. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 13. It says this. It says, Now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But what? The greatest of these 
is love. These three things remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And so, in essence, what Paul is saying is when you boil everything down, at the end of time, at the end of the day, these three things actually matter most. When you stack up everything else in life, faith, hope, and love, these three things remain. These three things are massively important, but even of those three, one of those things is the greatest. And it's not faith. It's not hope. It's actually love. Now, this isn't diminishing the importance of faith and hope. We're actually going to talk about faith and hope here a little bit today. It's not diminishing the the importance of those roles in, in what it means to walk with Jesus. But what Paul is saying is, if you weighed these three things out on a scale, you know, on a weighted scale, love would always win. Love is the greatest. And so we're going to walk through faith. We're going to walk through love and we're going to walk through hope together today. So let's start with talking about faith. Because Paul says that, that it remains. When you boil everything else down, and when you burn everything else out, faith, hope, and love remain. So faith, what is it? What does it look like? Well, faith is essential to knowing God, right? And, and when the Bible talks about faith, we're not talking at all about blind faith that has no evidence. When the Bible talks about faith, we're not talking about um, something that has no basis in fact. When the Bible talks about faith, it means having confidence in what we're hoping for and having assurance in what we cannot yet see. And faith, from a biblical standpoint, it takes two elements. And I think that this is so important because that word faith we throw around a lot of different times in our culture, in our world, but, but we don't always know exactly what it means. The, the biblical sense, faith actually has two elements. It has knowledge and it has trust. Okay, so in order to actually have biblical faith, in order to actually have saving faith in Jesus, you have to have knowledge and you have to have trust. And these elements come together, and if they don't, it's not true faith. You see, it's not enough just to to know about God, right? You know, you you can grow up in our world and grow up in our country, and everybody has at least heard the name of Jesus. Everybody at least has heard that that God exists. And so it's not enough just to have this academic knowledge that there is a God. See, knowledge is the first part of faith, but true faith actually takes knowledge and trust. Maybe you guys have seen this this example before. A lot of people have have, have used this example, but I think it's helpful to have some type of picture. You know, if I say something along the lines of, I have faith that this stool is going to hold me up, right? You know, it it could be really tempting to look at it and say, yeah, this this stool will hold me up. And I have this academic knowledge that, that, yeah, you know, structurally, it looks like there's four legs there. Yep, it'll hold me up, you know? And if I just say that, but I don't actually trust in it, that's not real faith. You see, it's not enough just to believe and say this, this stool will hold me up, but we have to actually trust and actually sit down on the stool in order to show that, that our faith is real. Faith takes both knowledge and trust. And the Bible actually says in Hebrews eleven six that it is impossible to please God without faith. Okay, so Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it's impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So, so what does that verse mean? It doesn't just mean that, that, that we need to know that God is there. It means that we also need to be able to trust God, to say, God, I want to give you my life. God, I want to say that you are worth following. 
God, I want to submit my heart to you, my desires to you. Everything that I have in my life is yours because I don't only know, I don't only have the knowledge that you're real, but I'm going to trust you with everything that I have. And that's what saving faith is. See, to, to be a, a follower of Jesus means to, to know that he exists and to trust him and to give him everything we have. That's what faith is. And that's where our relationship with God actually starts. That's where our relationship with God actually begins, is saying, I know that you're real, and I trust you with everything that I have. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. But, but here's what's interesting, because these three words, faith, hope, and love, they're linked to get together. All right? And so it's like, in order to grow, in order to be mature, it's not enough to just have faith. Faith is essential starting point in order to walk with God, but it's not enough to just have faith. See, our faith has to be seasoned with what? With love. These three things remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And so faith and hope, they're linked together, and if we want to be mature Christians, if we want to be mature followers of Christ, then, then our faith has to be bathed in love. Let me, let me give you an example. Maybe some of us have experienced this or seen this, but you say, well, how is it possible to, to, to have faith but, but not be you know, mature? Well, maybe we've all been around people who have great faith but are complete and utter jerks, right? Have you ever been in one of those situations, you know? Maybe if you're a student, you walk over on campus, and sometimes there's these street preachers, right? And, and they come onto campus, and they have a lot of faith. I can promise you that, because it takes a lot of faith to, to stand up in the middle of campus and, and, and to preach to people and to scream at people. They, they have faith. And they're really convinced of what they say is true. And sometimes that faith that they even possess may even be the same faith that we have. And they may attempt to do amazing things for God. But honestly, oftentimes, there's not much fruit that comes out of their faith because it's not seasoned with love, right? And so we can pick on people like that, but I think that it's easy for us also to, to, to think about our lives. Maybe it's somebody that you work with. Maybe it's somebody that, that's in your family. Maybe it's somebody that you go to school with that, that has that similar type of mentality where their faith is strong. And, and they're really certain and convinced of what they believe, but it's not seasoned in love. I know for myself, I... Uh, I grew up in, you know, what I would say is like a, a marginal Christian home, okay? So we went to, to church pretty often. That was a regular part of our tradition. Um, but for me personally, it, it wasn't real faith. So for me, it was one of those two elements. I had the knowledge that, that God existed, but I didn't have the trust, right? That was my story growing up. And so um, I went to church. I was the president of my youth group. You know, I, I, I kind of went through all the different motions, but I wasn't actually following Jesus. I didn't actually have faith in Christ. And so at the end of my senior year of high school, um, God did a work in my life as only he can do. And, and I actually had saving faith at that moment. I actually put my trust in Jesus. And so I became a Christian when I was 18 years old, right at the end of my senior year of high school. And I was coming to Bowling Green. I had already made that commitment. I was going to come here to, to get an education degree and, and, and go back home and be a, a teacher and a coach when I graduated. And so I came to Bowling Green, and I was, like, so passionate about my newfound faith. You know, I had a lot of faith. And, um, you, you know, I, I, I was so excited to tell other people about it. But my faith was very immature, 
in my early years of being a follower of Jesus because uh, I looked a lot like those guys that were on the street corners. Of course, you know, I, I wasn't out there thumping my Bible, but, you know, I basically almost hit people in the head with my Bible many times. I remember being a freshman uh, in, in the residence hall of Cole Hall, and I remember being up on the fourth floor, and I remember just wanting people to know about this, this Jesus that had changed my life, but just having no, like, real context. I remember getting an argument after argument after argument with people. And I was pretty convinced that I could just argue people into following God, you know? Maybe you've known somebody like that. Maybe you've been that type of person before. It's like, you know, I can work out the arguments really well. I remember sitting uh, in the fourth floor one time, and there was this guy. He came home from the bars. It was like 1 in the morning, and he was really drunk. And I was like, perfect time to share the gospel with this guy, you know? A really drunk guy, yeah. And so, you know, I'm just talking to him and me and him. We're getting more and more heated. We're getting more and more debate. We're getting more and more angry. And I remember, like, by the end of the conversation, we were just so mad at each other. And here I am trying to tell this guy about Jesus. Here I am trying to share my faith with him. But there was no love at all. There was no maturity. What I was sharing wasn't at all seasoned in love. This is how Paul says these two have to be linked together. You can have faith, but if people don't know that you love them, you're not going to go anywhere in a conversation with them. And so what about you, you know? As we're sitting here today, it's good for us just to kind of stop and reflect. Is your faith, if you have it, is your trust in Jesus, is it seasoned with love? Are you growing in love? Because if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you need faith, you need hope, but the greatest is love. And so the first question we all have to ask is, am I a person of love? When people think of me, not do they, do they think of how bold I am or, 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 or how persuasive I am, but do they think of me as somebody who loves? These three things remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest is love. It's a foundation. Faith is a foundation but it needs to be seasoned in love. So faith. Secondly, let's talk a little bit about hope. Let's talk a little bit about hope because biblical hope, again, it's a word that, that can get kind of mixed up in our world and our culture. Biblical hope is way more than just wishing for something. right? We talked about this during our Christmas series. Hope isn't just a, a wish. Biblical hope isn't just like an optimistic attitude, like I just have hope that everything's going to work out okay. That's not what, what the Bible actually is talking about when we're talking about the word hope. Again, hope, it's a confident expectation of something we know to be true yet cannot see quite yet. Okay, so, so hope is based in truth, not a wish. Hope is based in reality, not just optimism. Hope, it's a confident expectation of something we know is coming. Maybe some of you who do some military service, which I know we have a, a lot of people that, that work with the ROTC program or, or, or veterans or serve in the military. Maybe some of you uh, have heard of this rule of threes. Or if you, you do camping or, or do any type of survival skills, uh, the, the Air Force sur Survival Evasion Resistance Escape, the SERI uh, organization, they, they put out these, these, uh, the, the rule of three, right? And, and the rule of three says this, that, that you can survive... Three weeks without food, 
You know, so if you're like trapped out in in an enemy area or you're out in the woods and you get lost, you can know that you can survive about three weeks without food. You can survive about three days without water. If the conditions are harsh, you can only survive about three hours without shelter. If you're underwater, you can only survive about three minutes without air. But, but many people will tell you that if you're in a situation where you're clinging for your life, you can't even survive three seconds without hope, right? Because hope is what keeps us going so oftentimes. Hope is what we need to have to take a step forward, knowing that the outcome is set before us by God. As Christians, we need hope in our life because it's so powerful. And here's what hope does for for the follower of Christ. Hope actually keeps us centered on what's really important. Think about that. Hope keeps us centered on what's really important. Because I don't know about you, but I look at our world, you know. And and I look around and, and there's so much to get distracted with. And we have so many amazing things in our world. We have so many amazing opportunities. And of course, there is nothing wrong with that. There are so many shiny things that exist out within this world, you know, and, and so many good things, a job here, a friend there, you know, a, a problem here, a storm in life there, whatever the case may be. And, and hope keeps us fixed on the eternal reality that in the end, so many of these other things will fade away in life. But what is ultimately true What is ultimately based in fact is that God, God loves us and that his kingdom is eternal and that his kingdom will prevail. And someday, even as Paul says, all these other things are going to fade away, but these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. Hope keeps us fixed on what really matters. Have you ever walked through life and just say, how do I even prioritize things? How do I even figure out what I should be giving my time to? How do I figure out what I should be giving my, my talents, my, my money, everything that I have? How can I, what, what do I need to, to give my life to? Hope says there is one thing that is eternal and real, and that is the kingdom of God. And it is coming. And it's not just optimistic to think that it is. It's a reality. It's a truth. And so hope keeps us fixed on that. And hope keeps us from putting other things in the place of, of what God may want to be, do, do in our lives. Hope keeps us from building up idols in our lives, things that, that actually may be in and of themselves good things, but we start to actually worship them in place of God. Hope centers us and reminds us that, no, Jesus He's the only one worth worshiping. He's the only one worth living for. He's the only one worth dying for. Hope keeps us fixed on the eternal reality of God's kingdom. Hope says, no, I have a confident expectation that I'm not going to waste my life on things that will fade away, but I'm going to give my life to Jesus. In 1 Timothy 4, chapter 10, we're told this, for It is for this that we labor and strive because we've fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. See, what Paul is telling Timothy is he's writing to Timothy. He says, hey, we are striving. We are laboring. We're giving our lives to something. And that something is the hope that we have in God. And so he says, don't be discouraged when there's a storm that comes on in life. 
Don't be discouraged when things may not go exactly how you want them to go. Don't lose heart when in life you face troubles because hope centers us and reminds us that we're fixed on the living God. So faith and hope, they're so essential. They're so essential. And they're going to remain. But Paul says, put them on a scale, love. Love is even more important than those two attributes. Let's be reminded of of what we're told in in the beginning of, of chapter 13 about love. Right? Paul tells us, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but I don't have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor and give my body over to the flames that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Have you ever just like stopped and reflect on that? Because I know for many of us, like that's just such a familiar passage. We've heard it so many times. But have you ever just thought and, and pictured that? I mean, can you honestly imagine, you know, doing all these amazing things, actually performing miracles? And Paul says, it's nothing. It doesn't even mean anything unless it's done with love. See, love leads to greatness. Love is the end-all, be-all of our faith. You can have every talent in the world, you can have every gift in the world, but if it's not done in love, it means nothing. Jesus said it like this in John 13, 34 and 35. He says, A new commandment I give you, to love one another. As I have loved you, so you also must love one another. And then he says this phrase. This is a phrase that should stick with us. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Have you ever asked the question, well, how can we, we share about Jesus with people? You know, man, it's an intimidating process. I don't even know how to do it. Well, Jesus tells us right here, the primary way that people will actually look at us and say, there's something different about them. And even in the story video that we heard earlier, there's something different about these people. What is it? Jesus says it's not in their wise and persuasive arguments. It's not in our talent. It's not in our theology. Although none of those things are bad, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love. Love is what sets us apart. Love is the trademark of a follower of Jesus. And it may seem simple, and it may seem oversimplified, but it is so essential And so I want to close with this, because I think as we talk about love, it can be like just this this ambiguous thing at times, you know? And and of course, we all know that, that we need to love, but have you ever asked the question, how do we love when we don't feel like it? Because I don't know about you, but, but, but I go through life oftentimes, and there's many times where I may not feel like loving, Right? But, but here we're told that, that love has to be the centerpiece of our life. So how do we actually love 
when we don't feel like it. You know, it's funny, Sarah and I were talking about this um, as I was preparing the message, and, uh, you know, we're thinking about different examples of times where, where you, you need to love even when you don't feel like it. She said that just this week, she was right across the street at the post office. She pulled out in front of a lady, and the lady was so mad at her, you know, Sarah accidentally cut her off, and she was, like, flicking her off and, like, honking her horn, and Sarah, my, not my wife, the lady was doing that to my wife, you know, and, uh, and she was, like, chasing Sarah down, and, and she's like, how do you love in a situation like that, where somebody is just so upset, where somebody is just so angry, because love on, a, on an academic level, you know, it, it sounds so great, right? But love, it's, it's harder to actually display in real life. You know, we make jokes about that situation, but you think about so much more real situations. How do you love when you've been harmed by somebody? How do you love when you've been hurt by somebody? How do you love when you've risked, you, you put out, you put yourself out there, you poured yourself out for somebody, you've actually displayed love for them, and in return, you receive rejection, you receive pain. How do you love even in those situations? How do you love when you don't feel like it? And some of us may even ask the question, should we even love in those moments, right? Because oftentimes we're told you have to be true to your emotions, and so if I don't feel like loving, should I even love in those times? Am I just being a hypocrite? Am I just faking it until I make it? Is it okay to love when you don't feel like it? I want to propose today that, that, that love is something we do, whether our feelings align with that or not. See, we don't have to wait until we feel like loving somebody to actually love them. Jesus gave us these, these two greatest commandments. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love others as yourself. Everything, Jesus says, in the Bible, all of the law, he says, is contingent on these two commands. So if you do these two things, if you love God and you love others, the, the vertical and the horizontal, if you love God and you love others, then you are fulfilling every law that God has put up for us. But how do we do it? Well, here's what I want to propose today. Faith and hope give us the ability to love even when we don't feel like it. Faith and hope give us the ability to love even when we don't feel like it because faith and hope help us to look to the future and say God has a plan for this situation. God has a plan for this moment. God has a plan for me to step into this situation and love in spite of how I'm feeling. And I don't think that God would ask us to do anything that he himself wasn't willing to do. You know that Jesus loved even when he didn't feel like it? Jesus was a human, right? And so he walked on this earth. He had some of the same emotions as us. And Jesus loved even when he didn't feel like it. Check out this situation. Matthew chapter 26. It's right before Jesus is about to be betrayed by Judas. And he's about to go to the cross. And be killed. Jesus gathers some of his disciples together and he's just wrestling with God because he's about to have to do something that he does not want to do. Matthew chapter 26, verse 38 says, Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Verse 39, going a little farther into the Garden of Gethsemane here. Jesus fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, My father, 
If it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. In other words, God, I do not want to do this. I know what's about to come. And if there's any way for me not to do it, please. Verse 40, he returned and found his disciples sleeping. Sounds about right. Couldn't you men keep watch for me for even one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus went away a second time, and he prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Then he goes back, and his disciples are still asleep, and then he goes back and he prays a third time, and he says the same thing. God, I don't want to do this. I don't want to go to the cross Love isn't just an emotion, it's an action. God, but not my will, but yours be done. So how do we love when we don't feel like it? How do we love when we're sitting across the table from somebody who's wronged us? How do we love when we're in a situation where we can't wrap our mind around and can't align our emotions with what we know we are supposed to do, we can look to the example of Jesus who in the garden prayed and said, God, not my will. I must decrease. You must increase. I am going to choose love in spite of how I'm feeling in this moment because I have faith. I have faith that the cross is what needs to happen. I have faith that you sent me here for a reason. I have faith that the only way to reunite these people who you love with you is for me to be obedient to go to the cross and actually display the love that we have for these people. See, faith and hope help us to love even when we don't feel like it. And so you may say, well, that was Jesus. You know, but that was Jesus. I mean... I could never do that. I could never lay aside my own agenda, my own feelings, my own emotions, and actually love. And I would say, on your own strength, you are right. None of us could. But here's what the Bible tells us. When you put your faith in Christ and you have your hope in him, then the same spirit that sustained Jesus that actually allowed Jesus to go to the cross even when he didn't want to, and the same spirit that actually raised Jesus from the dead and and, and raised him out of that tomb, that same spirit lives inside of us now. And so, yes, Jesus did it, and Jesus is God, but the same spirit that empowered Jesus to love when he did not feel like it lives inside of those of us who have faith and hope in Christ. Faith and hope. They help us to love when it's beyond our ability, when it's beyond our emotions, when it's beyond our own capacity even. In Christ, we can love. So you want to be great? You want to be the goat? You know, you want to experience greatness in your walk with God? You want to experience great fruit in your life and ministry? You want to lead? You want to serve? You want to grow? Grow in your love. Focus on that. Because all the other things kind of fade away, but love rises to the top. Love leads to greatness. Let's be a church. Let's be a people. Let's be individuals that love 
beyond our capacity because we have the Spirit of God living inside of us. Let's pray together, guys, and let's worship. God, we thank you.